you suffer from numbness, tingling, burning, or pain in your feet and legs? It could be caused by something as simple and common as a B1 deficiency. This is Dr. Ronald Hoppen with a solution for low B1. Zobria. Zobria is a safe, effective, and clinically proven nutritional supplement containing a high-potency bioactive form of vitamin B1, which has been shown to reverse symptoms caused by low B1 with no side effects. Low B1 causes your nerve cells to stop functioning properly, resulting in numbness, tingling, burning, and pain in the feet and legs. It may also contribute to forgetfulness, loss of mental focus, fatigue, and loss of appetite. Restoring proper B1 levels has been shown to improve the functioning of these nerve cells. You can get Zobria risk-free by going to zobria.com. That's zobria.com and get 20% off with coupon code Hoffman at checkout. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's zobria.com. Vitamin B1 perfected. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, we're going to take a deep dive on the subject of diabetes and metabolic syndrome. You know, we're in the midst of a a pandemic, but actually some people have suggested that uh, we're really experiencing a twin pandemic. It's a pandemic of COVID, but it's also a pandemic of metabolic disease, also known as Syndrome X, insulin resistance, uh, and then there's, of course, full-blown diabetes. Uh, we're less and less fit, partially because of COVID, the lockdown, the restrictions on exercise and movement, and also the convenience of a DoorDash, where, uh, you know, just by scrolling through a menu on your mobile device, uh, you can order all kinds of gastrointestinal mayhem delivered to your door. And so today we're going to talk to an expert on the subject of diabetes. He's also uh, quite erudite in the field of GI medicine. She has a very strong gastroenterological practice. She's been a previous guest. We talked to her when her book first came out, Master Your Diabetes, a comprehensive integrative approach for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Dr. Morstein earned a summa cum laude in uh, Bachelor's of Science in foods and nutrition. And then she did her medical school and residency at the National College of Naturopathic Medicine. Uh, She is a naturopathic physician uh, in practice now for three decades, but she also served as the chair of nutrition, gastroenterology professor and clinical supervisor at Southwest Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine in Tempe, Arizona, where now they have uh, naturopathic medical schools uh, where they have a very, very rigorous uh, scientific curriculum to graduate uh, experts in naturopathic medicine. So, uh, Mona, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks very much for joining us today. Well, Ron, thank you for the honor of speaking again on your great podcast. Thanks. No, oh, it's my great pleasure. You're always a wonderful resource. So, uh, can you start by uh, sharing with us what's the scope of the problem? Is it really true that uh, diabetes, both type 1 and type twos, 2, are on the upswing here in the U.S.? Yeah, it, it is true, for sure. You know, we're up to at least uh, 30 million um, people with type 2 diabetes. We've got really over 65. One out of every four person has diabetes. 
We've got 70% of the population being either overweight or obese, and about 30% of the population are obese. So um, not that obesity is a guarantee to develop diabetes. Uh, there are other factors, but it is one of the top etiological risks. So um, it's a, it is a pretty huge problem, not just in our country. I mean, we don't have to just pick on the U.S. This is a problem throughout the entire world at this point in time. And the developing world as well, because uh, previous in previous generations, uh, the problem was always hunger and starvation. Now it may be a, a different form of malnutrition, overnutrition with poor quality foods that's even reaching developing nations and the so-called third world. Yeah, and I think it's um, not just overeating, uh, but you're right. You know, I mean, if we go back 40 years, as I remember with my statistics in 1980, there was around 100 million people worldwide. And I think uh, if we go to now around 215 or so, it's up to over 400 million uh, worldwide. Now, um you know, part of that, of course, is exporting crappy food and crappy drink to third world countries, sure. But I also think we export our pesticides mm -hmm. and herbicides. And we know that many of these persistent organic pollutants are literally can be labeled as obesogens and diabetogens. So we're, you know, exporting several problematic things to these countries that have medical associations with promoting the diabetes crisis. And it's been said that uh, the numbers for people who have outright diabetes, it's just sort of the tip of the iceberg that below the surface of the water in this metaphor uh, exists a, a vast number of people who are metabolically unfit. Uh, they have certain criteria, uh, which we could talk a little bit about, it, that renders them insulin resistant. So they haven't really crossed mm -hmm. the threshold to full-blown diabetes, but they're on the way or they may suffer some of the adverse consequences of diabetes even without developing a full-blown disease. That's completely true. I mean, even in the States here, if we believe now that we have 30 million people with diabetes, we believe we have around 80 million people with pre-diabetes or metabolic, you know, insulin resistance, et cetera, metabolic syndrome. I mean, that's really one out of every three Americans is either pre-diabetic or diabetic just by statistics, it's, it's frightening. It's, um, you know, it's, it's really a, 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 a dangerous um, statistic for not just the health of the people, but for the economy of our country as well. International security, because now it's harder and harder to find uh, fit uh, young men and women to uh, join our armed forces. Many of them wash out. It used to be uh, that they had to fatten up recruits in World War One. Yeah. Uh, and even World War Two, they had to, they they were underweight. So they you know they put them into boot camp. They fed them well, and then they met the weight requirement to carry heavy packs and rifles and you know equipment. <laughs> now it's the opposite. They can't pass the physical tests of whatever it is. You know, running a mile in under seven minutes or something along those lines. Uh, yeah, a bad situation. Yeah, that's that is true. That is very true. So, uh, 
classically, we divide diabetes into two types. Okay, so it's type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes. But uh, according to you in your book and current thought, uh, that's a little too arbitrary a distinction that there may be more than just two types of diabetes, right? Well, I mean, I would say at least four. Uh, there is type 2. There is type 1. Now, classic type 1, we generally associate with the pediatric population, although classic type 1 goes into the mid-20s, which is beyond pediatric age of 18, but we just kind of still class it as that young pediatric type type 1. And then we have the latent autoimmune diabetes of the adult, which oftentimes, excuse me, oftentimes but not always, is a slower onset type 1 that we see in patients generally over 35 to maybe around 60. That tends to, and generally 40 to 60 is where you'll find most of them who get type 1 um, at that at that age and are very, very commonly misdiagnosed as type 2. And then, of course, there's a genetic type of problem called mature onset diabetes of the youth, where these people MODY sometimes have, MODY right? Yes, it's also called MODY. Yes, and that's that's what it stands for. And these people may make insulin, but they have a genetic defect in secreting it from the pancreas, or they can secrete it, but they have a genetic defect of the receptor on the cells acknowledging it. So there are six main MODY gene defects. And, and those people uh, tend to not progress very far. Generally, uh, a, a kind of drug that we call the sulfonylurea, uh, they tend to have very low elevated glucose. So not a huge problem uh, for them. And they can't be thin, diagnosed correctly. if I'm not mistaken, right? Those yeah. MODY people. What? They can be thin, they don't necessarily oh, yeah, have to be they, fat. Yes, exactly. They, yes. And they may have just minor elevations, like their blood sugars go to 140 or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and granddad had it, and dad has it, and the kids has it, mm -hmm. since it's a really genetically passed down. Now, of course, type 2 diabetes has that kind of genetics too. But for most people, then, there are other things such as they were overweight or, you know, they had other conditions aside from lean, ele minor elevations in glucose, you know, going down the family line. Right. So uh, th there's this uh, distinction between type 1. Type 1 diabetics get insulin. But increasingly, they're treating type 2 diabetics, the overweight kind, who also have uh, adverse cardiovascular markers, maybe they have high triglycerides and a bad cholesterol to HDL ratio. Uh, they sometimes treat those folks, even if they're overweight, with insulin. Does see that as a as a problem? <laughs> well, you know, so obviously, in now you can look at it two ways. They have done studies where they had acute type two patients and they used insulin and that got their blood sugars down and calm their pancreas and they weaned them off the insulin and and then they actually did well for six months a year or so forth uh, it's just that nobody really wants to do that physicians don't want to do that patients don't want to do that and so we have other medications most of which are fairly problematic 
for our type 2 diabetic patients, um, since none of them really well anymore treat insulin resistance, which is their main etiology for the disease of diabetes. Um, so over time, though, if you are a poorly controlled person with diabetes and your blood sugars are elevated, it causes damage all over your body and it can cause damage to your pancreatic cells too, mm -hmm. to the extent that they can be damaged enough that they no longer produce insulin. So you can become an insulin type diabetic as a type 2. It, it's um, as also if you exhaust people, your insulin production because yes. your, your body senses that yes. they need to control blood sugar. So you pump out more and more and more and more insulin until finally your pancreas says, enough already. I, I can't do this anymore. And then you actually do become insulin. Uh, well, it may requiring. be that they get, it may be that they quote unquote burn out, mm -hmm. but it also may be that there's been so much damage to those beta cells from the, you know, elevated blood sugars in a body cause anti, cause oxidative damage in several different pathways. So oxidative damage is happening. Obviously, we know in the eyes and the kidneys and the nerves and the endothelial lining of the blood vessels, which is why those are the four main complications, but it can cause damage to the liver, to the pancreas, etc. So it can just be over the years, if they're poorly controlled, they're could have enough oxidative damage to their pancreas that it loses the capacity to produce insulin. Um, also, ironically, if a person is very overweight um, or very insulin resistant from any other reasons, um, and they make plenty of insulin, but sometimes they're going to give them at least basal insulin to just really force the cells to take some you know, into their receptors and act on that and lower the blood sugars. So you get, you do get people who have working pancreases and still get put on insulin, particularly basal uh, insulin, just is the only, since none of the oral medications or the other injection, the glucagon-like peptide one um, shots made a difference in these people. Mm -hmm. But doesn't uh, taking insulin uh, promote weight gain and increase oh. craving for carbohydrates and so it just puts you on a roller coaster where you have low blood sugar, you have to eat more to cover your insulin? Oh, and, well, yeah, it's a problem. Well, even if you don't have low, I mean, you can dose the insulin to not have low blood sugar that, you know, obviously we would try to adjust it so that's not happening. But the fact of the matter is, is that insulin is called the fat building hormone and what insulin is designed to do in our body is have the cells taking glucose turn it to fat and store it and not break it down so yes it is very if, if people that are overweight and have type 2 diabetes lose the weight oftentimes we can reverse the diabetes very well um, but if they're on a lot of insulin to try to force the cells to take the glucose in, that does really negatively affect the body's capacity to burn the fat, lose the weight. So it is um, now, you know, insulin resistance just makes people lose um, appetite control because the, you know, if you're eating, your brain 
is getting food and, and your body is putting out insulin and it goes to the brain and it and one of the signals the brain will put out when the insulin lands there and gets glucose into its cells is it tells the rest of the body, okay, that's enough food, we're done. But if cells are insulin resistant like the brain, those signals are not being sent. Mm -hmm. And people mm -hmm. can have a loss of appetite control, be overeating, feeling that they're not getting signals that that's enough. People go on a low-carb diet generally within one week you know, they can come back to my clinic and say, wow, this diet is doing great. You know, I'm not that hungry anymore. And it, it can happen that quickly that appetite control can reestablish itself, even though they're still overweight, but because there's been a drastic shift in insulin levels coming out and resistance. So it, it, it's amazing how quickly the body can get back into control one or two weeks. It can even with needing to lose 100 pounds, it can still get the appetite under control pretty quickly, which is a huge help for the patient. Well, apropos of that, you know, there's a lot of controversy about the right kind of diet for diabetes. And in the past, uh, the ADAs, and I use the plural, the American Dietetics Association and the American Diabetes Association have advocated diet that is a low-fat diet, uh, relatively high in complex carbohydrates. They don't want you eating a lot of sugar, but they say, you know, whole grains and stuff like that are good. Uh, and now along comes the new paradigm, uh, popular paradigm, originally espoused by folks like Dr. Atkins, a very low-carb diet, even a ketogenic diet for diabetes. Uh, which side do, do you fall on? Well, I think you also, so the AD, the American Diabetes Association developed the low-fat, high-carb diet because when they started doing autopsies on people with diabetes who almost invariably died of cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, and strokes, their arteries were full of fat. And so back in the 70s, the paradigm was, wow, look at all this cholesterol and fat in their arteries, so let's do a low-fat, you know, cholesterol diet and higher grains. And it made sense. It's just that in 40-some years, the um, understanding, the physiology of high you know, lipids and, and, and atherosclerosis has, has changed quite a bit. And if you, since the, honestly, since around 2013, 14, when they put out some new guidelines, even the ADA discusses low carb diets and how there is some science. And if doctors choose to use those, that is a, you know, considered an acceptable, uh, an acceptable diet. Um, I I do, I am an advocate of a low carb diet. I don't know if it has to be in ketogenic. I find sometimes ketogenic diets are harder for patients to enjoy, um, versus getting a lot of nut grain flours and making pancakes and breads and, you know, eating, you know, eating that, giving them the allowance to get to 30 or maybe, you know, 30 to 40 grams a day seems to be effective, but give them enough variety and fun in their diet than just that really, really low ketogenic diet of five to 10 grams a day, which limits them quite a bit in their foods more so than a low carb. So, but that is the diet that I do promote. I, you know, and that I still think it's the most effective one for most patients. Uh, I'm holding here in my hands an article uh, which is entitled Obesity Management as a Primary Treatment Goal for Type 2 Diabetes from The Lancet 
time to reframe the conversation. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, you know, I, I guess that that article came out in like 1950. But actually, unfortunately, it only just came out September 30th, 2021. What they're saying here is that, you know, all the drugs that we use, as, as you mentioned earlier, you alluded to the fact that a lot of there's a lot of problems with the drugs and they don't really attack the underlying problem, which is insulin resistance. Exactly. We should shift our focus rather, you know, rather than controlling blood sugar, which we can. We can bring down blood sugar with a myriad of drugs that we should focus on lifestyle. Yeah, enabling mm-hmm. people to lose that 15% or more body weight that can actually have a disease-modifying effect, as they say in this this op-ed. Well, it's true. You know, the drugs they had way back when that addressed insulin resistance were the TZDs. And um, those pretty much are, although the FDA allows them to be prescribed uh, because they were associated um with a study that showed they were associated with increased cardiovascular disease. I haven't seen a physician prescribe those for years. Uh, and uh, so they're really the other medications that we have. Uh, you could say metformin deals a little bit with insulin resistance, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not its main focus. Uh, so, yeah, th- it's like... Um, they just none of their drugs actually deals with the etiology of the condition. Um, so, it, you know, if Lancet decides, you, you know, to get on a bandwagon to lose weight, you know, I went to not this year, a couple of years ago, I went to the American Diabetes Association, one, one their big yearly one, it was in Florida. And, uh, you know, they're standing up there talking about how they've, ju- you know, they're so excited that they've just approved, um, you know, bariatric surgery as a valid treatment for type 2 diabetes when they can't get under control. And so I stood up in front of 700 people and, you know, my heart's pounding, <laughs> uh, you know, just unbelievably. And I said, you know, I'm so disappointed Like you're talking about doing life-changing, you know, damaging surgery with innumerable complications. And in this whole four days, nobody's mentioned a low-carb diet. Not one. Not one class. Not one. All of these classes. Not one time did you acknowledge a low-carb diet. And, um, you know, obviously the, the person, the speaker didn't have too much to say. But I had probably 20 people you know, medical people, nurse practitioners come up to me afterwards and, yeah. and uh, you know, just personally support uh, my comment, you know, in this ADA conference. So, um, so yeah, it's um, we definitely need for conventional care to have a huge paradigm shift in, in their thought for sure. Indeed. Okay, good point at which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. Uh, in part two, we're going to talk about uh, certain supplements that may be beneficial for diabetes. Uh, you alluded earlier to uh, the role that toxicity might play. Uh, and uh, we'll also talk about uh, exercise, which form of exercise is best for diabetes. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest is Dr. Mona Mor- Morstein. Dr. Uh, Morstein uh, is uh, an expert on diabetes. Uh, she also uh, is adept at working with patients with gastrointestinal problems. Uh, She has a private practice, and uh, she also is the author 
of the highly esteemed book, Master Your Diabetes, a Comprehensive Integrative Approach for Both Type 1 and Type 2 Diabetes, available from all the usual sources. So we'll be right back with more of today's Intelligent Medicine podcast. 